Good evening, everybody. Uh, it's absolutely a pleasure to be here again, hosting another interaction on Thinkers Dialogue. Uh, as you know, this is a weekly uh, interaction that we do with foremost thinkers across the world. And today we have uh, none other than Marcus Foster. Uh, Mark is a very dear friend. Uh, I think I've known him for about a decade, a decade and a half. Uh, and I think uh, I must say in a friendly banter that it's been a torturous journey of knowing Mark over the last uh, 15 years. Uh, but I must tell you that he's one of the finest thinkers that you will actually come across. Uh, I've actually had a chance of really growing with him, working with him uh, as colleagues at the uh, Microeconomic Competitiveness uh, uh, Council. Uh, in fact, uh, we were the co-chairs for the HQ Council there for an initiative that is headed by Michael Porter. Uh, and uh, of course, like other than that, uh, Mark, of course, is a double PhD. Uh, I do not know what was the reason for doing the second PhD because it uh, seems that he was just not satisfied with the first one. Uh, so uh, he has to be maybe Dr. Dr. Marcus Cosito or something of that sort. And then of course, uh, has published extensively. Uh, in fact, we have also authored a couple of pieces together, uh, recently published a piece uh, uh, with uh, Howard uh, uh, Social Business Review or Social Impact Review. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, he has had uh, positions with Cam University of Cambridge. He's with Arizona State University. He actually teaches at the Harvard Extension School uh, and teaches courses around competitiveness, economics, and so on and so forth. Uh, a very broad-ranging person, uh, probably a lot of times I would say uh, a very entrepreneurial uh, academic. Uh, and uh, so uh, we are uh, possibly, we can say that we are very different together as well. Uh, and as a person, he is just an astounding uh, person and of course uh, has a little baby uh, girl. So that's uh, where it is. And I think uh, uh, has done uh, some amazing work uh, on the books as well. So has done two bestsellers, one on artificial intelligence and one on mega trends. Uh, so uh, this is where a very quick, a brief introduction for Mark. Uh, and uh, without further ado, we'll just get into the conversation and this dialogue, which is going to be a one-on-one -on -one conversation between the two of us. Uh, so uh, Mark, uh, thanks a lot for joining in and thanks for taking out time. Thanks. Yes. So Mark, let me just ask you like, uh, a lot of people will end up saying, I'll start with the personal question here. And a lot of people would say that you're an accidental uh, academic. Uh, how would you want to react to that? Uh, you know, I, I think that it's absolutely the case. I guess I would never be able to work anywhere else uh, because I cannot stand still. I don't necessarily have uh, any form of respect for authority, not dissimilar from you in that case. And I guess jokes apart, I really want to be entrepreneurial in my ability to do things. And I guess working in a corporate environment has never been really what I wanted to do. So I guess academia was the answer to that sense of restlessness that I wanted to have. But even within academia, I think uh, I have disrupted it. Uh, like I think in your case, Amit, we never believed in the ivory tower. One of the reasons why we were fascinated by Michael Porter is that inside of the Harvard system, he is an outlier. In economies that work in the business school and is published primarily in practitioner journals and books. And he has shaped and influenced the world of strategy in a way that it was not easy to think, unthinkable, uh, but never really consider an economist by the economics department. And I think in many ways, I found that was an inspiring way of thinking about the job we have. You know, we have access to many opportunities because I think we are privileged. 
but it's the responsibility we have with the privilege that matters. And I guess uh, I found that this job was the one that was giving me the highest opportunity to create an impact. But I would agree, I've been an accidental academic. And not only that, accidental everything somehow. Okay, well that, that's a fascinating uh, view. Uh, and of course, we've had discussions on this. Uh, but quickly, you know, like when you are so restless, as I, as I know you uh, and who loves to travel, who, who probably lives on the plains uh, uh, much more than uh, any one of us around. And how has COVID impacted uh, your life? How do you really look at the situation? You know, interesting, I was, of course, slowed down, and I had to lock down in March, but then I was able to fly again from June, and I didn't stop since then. The frequency has changed, and I think the quality of my choices has also improved. Now I just go to the places that I really think are worthy, but besides that, many of the offers now have shifted to the online, so it has self-regulated itself. Um, but COVID has been for me, I guess, more than not from the travel perspective, a quite interesting reflection time on how do am I spending the second half of my life uh, now that I reach it, um, whether I'm going to prioritize the relationship that I care for, the people I want to work with. Um, it's no secret that you, know, you and I have been working together for more than a decade because it's easy to work together. We like each other. And we're both driven by very similar values. But don't we find sometimes people that are exactly the opposite, that we feel we waste our time? I guess my eureka moment was to understand that I really wanted to spend my second part of life in doing the things that I care the most. And that's what COVID gave me the most, that knowledge that I didn't have before because I was going too fast. So I have to put you in a, a block here. You, know, you, you said that you've started making some right choices. So are you trying to tell me that you made some wrong choices uh, beforehand? Or yeah, of course. I, I think so. I think I had many times said yes to projects that I was saying yes because it was the right thing to do at the moment, but they were not necessarily projects that gave me too much value. Um, I think I was sometimes too busy to really differentiate the quality of the things I was getting into. And so there were good things and less good things. Um, so yeah, I guess I have made a number of mistakes also before. Nothing I regret or that I would actually not do again if I was going back in time, because I guess they led me to where I am. Um, but I, I was, I think, uh, overly uh, transported by the flow of events. And suddenly you could go from one location to the other within 24, 48 hours you will figure out a way to come back home, you know, stop for one or two days, fly somewhere else. And now suddenly things are in perspective now. Things, they, they are much more, I think, grounded on the reality of things that really matters. Um, so to my personal experience, COVID has been a tough moment, but it's also been a moment where I have been able to look at things in, in perspective. And in that playback time, I have seen where I could have been a better person. And I guess that's uh, probably where I would like to be from now onwards. Mm -hmm. And of course, like, uh, because it was time to reflect, and I'm sure being who you are, uh, you are now looking at the next idea, which could be uh, different. Uh, we will come back to uh, one of your most important ideas in megatrips as we go yes. along. But what is, what is that new thing that you're really thinking of? What is that outlandish idea or a freakish idea that you're really looking at pushing to the world? 
you know, I'm, I'm cooking uh, ideas around the building of resilience in case of shocks, in case of changes in normalcy, because I guess we all came across the idea of the new normal during the COVID. But I also realized that we have no smart way to deal with that other than telling people develop some form of resilience. And I'm trying to understand how can we put it into a perspective that can be replicated, where we can train and write about it, where we can think about the challenges that we're facing ahead of us will continue to increase is the nature of interdependent systems. And we've been seeing this already from before. So as we see the acceleration of these really large events, how do we train both uh, decision maker in the public, public and private sector to make decisions that are gonna be resilient and, and not necessarily desperate or reactive. I think that's the direction that I, my thinking is currently going. So there's been some writing that I did with some colleagues. Uh, we came up with a framework. I think we are now uh, like uh, envisioning a book project. You know how we operate. Every time that we have a big idea, we need to channel it somewhere. Now we're hoping to bring it over to uh, a book project. Um, so far, we had a couple of interesting conversations with publisher, two offers as well. So we're, we're trying to consider where to go. Um, but I guess that will be the, the way forward. Uh, and I'll tell you more at the end of the conversation. That's like a grand finale. OK, uh, awesome. But then just coming to your work, which I find fascinating, uh, and in fact, uh, very, very uh, robust in terms of how you're thinking. But can you tell more about your work on megatrends and what really pushed you or made you move into that direction to really uh, look at that body of work? You know, it started, uh, I mean, uh, in 2013 with a uh, um, question about where is growth? Uh, remember some of the consulting gig that sometimes we get with governments um, or with company, we are always exposed to the very same question, where can I find new growth? Where are the new markets? Where can I have new opportunities? And I was just realizing that we were using the same language in economics that we used for the last 50 years. Um, and I was feeling a bit uh, tired that the stock of knowledge that I had was not really capable of understanding the needs that we had in the future. So we started to, again, you know, I've been working always with some co-authors and all of them are also your friends. Um, so we started to write more about where's new growth, how the trends are currently shaping the opportunity for markets. And somehow we had this moment where we started understanding that if we were able to, to see these trends unfolding, we could have also understood the potential for companies, firms, individual governments. So we started to get fascinated with the idea of trends. And then it started the whole set of the research that led to the book. But the original idea was, I probably need to start looking much more at the external world than before. If you remember from our training in economics, I mean, whenever there were external factors, they were used as called externalities. And sometimes we didn't even want to consider them, right? Today, I don't think there is any policy or business model can survive unless you're integrating externalities in your way of thinking. I guess that's the very beginning. That's the trigger how trends became important to me. And so when you talk about this work, and I think in one of your TED Talks, which I was actually hearing, you, you made a very interesting remark that you were a kid who was always questioning. And that is probably that pushed you into this direction as well. So how, how were you really looking at things? How were you really challenged by really finding newer perspectives? What, what was it that you were doing all the time to really get into this direction? 
you know, I was I was getting frustrated that we were using incremental models to talk about growth, and we were assuming that the world is in, in perpetuity growing forever. And I was like saying, this is not happening. We are finite resources. In many situations, the resources are becoming scarce. We are more people now on Earth than ever in history. We really have to rethink about our way of understanding growth, resources, you know, factors of production. So I was getting frustrated that everything that I was trying to look was going in one direction. And I was noticing that world and the economy and the society was to some extent moving in a very different direction. I, the way I explained this to myself is that I was looking at things with a ruler and a straight line, but the reality I was trying to measure was so much more entropic, evolving, dynamic, nonlinear. And I was thinking, how is it possible that allegedly educated person find it so hard to understand what's happening? And because I was overly dependent on the economics training that, that I had. And I, that started to be my rupture, my fracture with the system. You know, that was also the time, if you remember, I was in France, I was a full professor in Grenoble, I got the tenure, and then I got it. I said, you know what, now for me it's time to break loose, to start doing things that matter more. And I wanted to move away from, from that dependency from the, let's say, intellectual um, towers. And then that's how I started to pivot, try new ideas, try to learn from strategy, entrepreneurs, economist, you know, this was the time that Michael Porter made the most impact in my thinking because of, I mean, he was almost 70 and he was so innovative in the way he was thinking. And I was constantly going, I remember we we're going from cluster, then he started introducing the idea of healthcare. Then he started to write about politics. I mean, I was thinking he's understanding this evolution very dynamically, better than if you're looking just at, you know, silos. I guess that's really what shook the system for me. And I do see a little bit of a pain when you're saying that the world is going into one direction in terms of like, it is always looking at growth and things. Like, what, what do you think is wrong with that whole idea or how do you really want to build a perspective which is different uh, from that whole growth-centric view to the world? You know, I, I think, I mean, and that was another like eureka moment when we started to do work on the social progress with, with Michael, right? you start to realize that what matters in life, especially as you get older, is not the measurement of growth, the way you think in economic terms, but it's the ability for you to become who you want to become, to have access to some form of social infrastructure and to have access to opportunities. And I think that becomes particularly true when you have a kid, you start thinking about the future through the eyes of your kid. I guess that was for me like, okay, you know, life is not measured only in one dimension. Life must be measured in multiple dimensions. And have I been able to think that way for most of my career? And I was realizing that I was following uh, the very same metrics that then became too tight for me. And I was thinking maybe there is a better way for me to think about what is growth. It's not just linear and incremental, it's maybe multidimensional. And that was somehow also opened and uh, made available to me when I started to look at these trends. and. What is a trend, if you think about it? I mean, it is a dot that is connecting to another dot and then another dot. And then whatever is the emerging structure is very different than what you originally thought. That's an evolution of thinking for me was quite relevant. And I, I, I love, suddenly I was uh, finding myself seeing things that I've never seen before. 
And of course you say, what, well, that's phenomenal then because we are in a position of influence, then you can redirect your students, your readership, your colleagues towards that. So we can create movements which are you know, in peaceful terms, not like the ones that, that mob the Capitol hills, but that's a different story. Yeah, I'll come back. <laughs> no, I have to ask you that question because uh, I think you are from the US and uh, I think effectively in the next couple of hours, you'll have a new president uh, in about two hours, 10 minutes time. So uh, yeah. how are you really looking at Listen, that? Listen, that was the only reason why we went live is because it was not coinciding with uh, Biden being sworn in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think jokes apart, uh, I mean, you always come first, just know it. No, I think that finally we're going to have, again, some sense of decency in, in, the, in the U.S. system. I guess what we have realized is that there is a vacuum of leadership if the U.S. decides to step down, that it's not covered by anybody. I would say maybe China has, has gained some ground, Russia as well, um, but I would say... I felt really the vacuum of leadership uh, like I never felt before. But I think what I suffer the most about the outgoing administration is the incompetence from the trade conversation all the way down to America first movement that did not really understand that some of the policy were making Americans worse off, you know, to the idea that you can replace, you can resource back jobs that have been lost to automation and technology. I was sometimes like, or to the idea that immigrants who made the United States were now suddenly the enemy. There were things that were really like saying, how on earth is this happening? So I was on a constant state of pain. Um, and I think I remember we having this conversation many at the very beginning. And I also remember when the, during the pandemic, we were mainly locked down and we were having many webinars together, if you remember. And we both were feeling that feeling that. Uh, we really wanted a change. At the time, we didn't know about Biden winning, but we were really afraid that another four years of that madness. Right? So anyway, that, that's, uh, I guess I have said already quite a bit, right? Uh, yeah, so we, we will not, uh, I'll not put you into any kind of uh, uncomfortable position here. Uh, but coming back to this whole idea of trends, well, what do you think are the big three or four trends which are going to shape the way and the world is really going to be in the next 20 to 30 years or maybe the next 50 years? You know, I think it's uh, interesting that I, uh, we see the, uh, the trends that COVID brought up to be the beginning of a series of trends that will unfold. I think the first one is that technology will no longer be just uh, technology like we used to know it before, but we now know technology is one of the asset classes in our society. Technology decides much more than what we think. The collective design of technology generates value, values that we are, are unprecedented. You know, the fact that you have in company like Tesla, they are considered to be technology companies in many ways with a larger market cap than all the automotive companies combined or all the oil and gas company combined. It shows you that something has really happened. So I think technology will definitely become a driver in the next, in the next decades. In a way, we will collectively use it to hopefully address some of the challenges that we're going to have. The other big question that I guess has become a trend is redefining that the global supply chain that we so much have uh, admired didn't work well for everybody. 
we have to recognize that the populist movements, they come because the, the model that we were using did not take into account everybody. Many people were falling through the cracks. You know, I do I believe the nationalists, they happen for a reason because there is this content and anger and people are unhappy and they find unable to uh, retrain fast enough to the opportunity they're coming with the new economy or simply where they are is, is being completely deindustrialized and there's nothing left. So I guess where we rethink about supply chain, a balance between local economy and global, what somebody called global, uh, I guess we will reconsider uh, that being uh, a nationalistic doesn't have to conflict with being a globalist. While before we were creating this difference in which you're either a globalist or you're a nationalist. One of the things that we were saying in many of my conversation is that the best nationalist leader is a globalist because no business, no country can prosper in isolation anymore. So I think these are the trend that will start more and more. Um, that, that's where our, our colleague, Clara Khanna, that you also know, inspires me a lot in thinking that the functional geography will be much more about cities and region and this form of decentralization than national, national states. Some of these trends I see happening at the faster pace than before. Um, I also see trends that worry me, overly dependency on these technology companies for everything. Uh, you know, Yuval Harari thinks that we will become data colonies if we're not gonna be able to have our own technology solutions. I believe what happened in 2020 and me became an eco chamber. At first, we feel the acceleration in every single element, but it also became a major page changer. We're, we're writing an entirely new chapter right now. And I feel it when we talk about the, maybe, you know, we talk about new normals. Uh, we should call it never normal, to be honest, because I'm not sure where we're ever going to get to normalcy the way we used to. So, you know, like, you make three very important points, but something that hits me. Uh, very, very strongly. And that is about the dependence on technology companies. And what do you foresee? Like, because we're already seeing in the last nine months, I think the whole dependence on how we are actually doing yeah. or operating is so driven by the platforms that we are actually on right now, something like Zoom to uh, the very restructuring of how education was happening uh, or to how people were interacting. So what do you think is going to happen because of that? And I'm sure there are multiple issues that are going to yes. emerge from here. Yes, I think, I mean, our generation, I think we're going to be safe because we can turn it off in the sense that we have a reflex in our mind that life outside of technology can exist. But I'm much more worried about the younger generation that were digitally native, they were born with technology and they never experienced life outside of being connected or having Wi-Fi or having a mobile phone or an iPad. I mean, I do remember when a phone call was a pay phone with quarters. And I remember, you know, when I didn't have to spend time in front of a computer to know what I am doing for a living. I guess I can still turn off the computer and turn off the phone and I can still find a way to entertain myself. But I guess the previous generation, the newer, newer generation, I find them to be uh, unable to always make that determination. And so, when life is becoming a digital identity only, then I'm concerned that we're gonna be manipulated by algorithmic opportunities where people will do what the algorithm decides to do 
where we'll decide that we want to look like Instagram make us look when we improve our pictures. You know, I think this, this, this distortion from reality, it will worries me the most. Because then we saw this with Cambridge Analytica, that has an input on the political spectrum. We saw this in terms of how much amplifying different source of truth doesn't necessarily makes it better because some events don't have two truths, they only have one. I'm just afraid of that. I guess uh, um, we have, and I guess I'm, I'm putting myself into this now, as educators, we have to uh, help the younger generation creating the critical understanding that uh, there is more to life than just a digital transaction. And we have to know whether we will do it through our teaching, our writing, whether it will be about uh, creating entrepreneurship camps without technology so people can think about ingenuity and ideas. Um, I, I believe that that's what are some of the trends that will equally concern me as we move forward. So one of the things that you're talking about, Mark, is, is you, you yourself said like how youth is actually going to move forward and things or how we have to train them. Uh, but the challenge that I see today, uh, and that's my perspective, and I could be horribly wrong on this, uh, but the way I'm looking at it is that the youngsters are not reading enough. They're not, uh, what do you call, uh, looking at things from a far deeper perspective as you would have looked at in the past. Now, you are more dependent on a 240-character uh, conversation, and you're building your ideas on that. And that also has a huge reflection on how authoritarianism has actually risen. So what happens in the future? Because is it going to so happen that we are going to have youngsters who are not really going to use their minds or is it going to be people who are not going to be using their minds and would actually lead to a catastrophe? You know, I mean, mental health is unfortunately on the rise and also juvenile suicide. And that's something that worries me because I think when I grew up, suicide was such a remote option among my friends. It was not the conversation that people used to have. We were just playing, having to chase, playing sports. When you grow up, you start having more social interaction. I mean, there was a different understanding of life. Uh, and today I see the many youngsters that are becoming completely absorbed by their social media uh, you know, devices. Um, I also see a big drop in their attention span. I find exactly the same. I remember reading a quite interesting research that was saying that reading on the iPad does not make you retain content as much as reading on paper. But how many headmasters or director of schools I have met that they think they want to be cool by saying my school uses iPad, but the amounts are kind of saying you're not becoming, you're not moving in the right pedagogy. You're actually building the condition for this generation to be weaker than before. And if you put it in, so the, also the economics of the millennial that actually are a completely asset-free generation. They don't own anything of the economy. I'm just concerned that we're going to build a generation of people that are going to be unable to make those critical decisions because they have not been trained uh, to do that because they, uh, they appreciate immediacy much more than appreciating the critical discourse. Um, I guess this is some of the things that I'm worried about. And, and I tend to see a lot of challenges in some countries. You know, what happens, for example, with the movements when we see generation taking a big stance and breaking with the previous ones, Japan, South Korea, 
You know, Chinese are also becoming very different from their parents. I'm just extremely concerned about the fact that we are a society that is losing the values and we're replacing them with immediacy gratification that can be an immediate like on Facebook or on Instagram, an immediate sense of joy for something that make us look better on how we are doctoring our image, on how popular we are on social media, on social relationships that are entirely built on an online platform. I mean, this is something that really worries me because I don't think it's just about modernity. I think that we are so like eroding the value system that really defines what a society is all about. And I believe, because I guess geopolitics is part of our life, this also erodes uh, democracies in countries that have democracies. Michael Sandel, like a candidate that you probably know, he writes that if everything becomes a, a commodity, the price of life is something that somebody will afford more than somebody else. So we say that's some of the challenges I really have. You know, like, but there's a counter view. In fact, I just got a counter view from one of the people on the uh, webinar as well. He says, it's possibly become a fad to bash the younger generation. And they're probably more relaxed uh, or uh, they're not uh, obsessed about work. They're possibly no work uh, uh, people who are work alcoholics uh, amongst them. Yeah. And they're probably bombarded with 100 times more number of stimuli than the generation that was born in our era, 60s, 70s, or whatever. So we are probably already too stale from his point of view. And then Maybe. and they're probably quicker in judging and interpreting and moving and reflexes. So how, how would you really react to that? Like suddenly, at one time, one aspect is that, oh, they're just moving way forward. And we are just living with a jargonized view of the world in terms of saying, oh, it is about values and morals and everything. Yeah. You know, I think, and that's a fair point. You know, I think if our generation had inherited the value systems, and so all we need to do is to be part of that. If uh, you were going to school, getting a degree, it was because you were getting a job. And that's not because you made up your mind, but that you knew that education was critical to get a job, right? That whole way of life was given to us from our previous generation. I think the challenge with the new generation is what will be the values that will drive decision and society in the future when what defined us no longer works for them in the same way. And I tend to agree. Maybe we were overly uh, workaholic because we were coming from a culture of growth, industrialization, and all of that. I'm happy that the new generation will find that work doesn't have to be a dimension of production only. But then what will be the future work for them? How will that look like? And it's very likely that they will have to define that for us because I think uh, they will have to define it as a representation of what they think and what matters to them rather than having this designed by somebody else who doesn't have the same skin in the game. Amit, I'm not, I'm not hearing you. Amit, Amit you're, you're muted. So as I take a step back uh, here, uh, you know, um, you, you know, like, there is something very important that you're saying in terms of like how things are changing. Uh, and you are really reflecting on a lot of uh, views as to how the world is moving ahead, what kind of trends are happening. Uh, but you use a framework for defining this uh, work, or you actually use what you call as a drive framework. Yeah. Uh, yes. Could you just talk more about the drive framework and how, how we can actually learn from that framework uh, and really assess ourselves as well as society, as people, to really see how things are changing? So, I mean, drive has been one of my lucky 
experiences because I think um, when we design drive, we were trying to understand how do we organize these trends in a way that we can eventually share it, advise, uh, consult, teach, write. And so, you know, in business school, we tend to have this obsession for frameworks. And I think that obsession is good because it simplifies ideas enough for you to be able to chew them and make them your own, right? So I guess Drive is about demographics and the reflection on the changes that we are facing as a society and also how the economics of the world is changing at the same time, where people live, how people consume and all of that. The R is around the resources and I guess the conversation on climate, climate change. What will we do with the sustainability crisis that we're not necessarily yet addressing? Um, that we see becoming an increasing imploring uh, and actually imploding crisis. Um, the eye is about the increasing inequality and COVID has simply ex exacerbated that where more and more people are, gap, the gap between who, who, those who have, those who don't really have is increasing. It, this used to be a problem of the Pareto, if you remember, 80% and the 20%. But now in country with social welfare, the inequality gaps are becoming larger. And I'm just worried that this is not necessarily going in the right direction. Uh, we're talking about the kind of recovery of the crisis and the most likely shape is a K shape that JP Morgan brought up. But if you think about the K shape, it means that the distance between performance will always be somehow structurally despair. So I guess these are some of the challenges the eye tries to take into account. The V talks about the volatility and the scale and the complexity is really where the conversation on technology was mainly introduced. And um, we were so like lucky that technology was uh, perceived as a trend when it was still somehow just emerging. Now technology has such a driver, driving forces in everything we do. And it was also the fact that as we are increasing the complexity of everything, forecasting the future is becoming harder and harder by the day. And the last one was the more business side, what we call enterprising dynamics. Where is competition and new business model coming from? It's not coming from the traditional players. Uh, you know, um, I think you, you know well uh, Navi who wrote about the frugal innovation. Navi wrote about with um, his college IDEP, I guess in Cambridge, about the fact that the frugal innovation that is coming from country like India is now scaling back in global markets. The Chinese are coming up with ideas, they're becoming product, they're now are being shared. We have people with Lenovo computers or that they use WeChat. Um, so suddenly innovation doesn't come anymore from the traditional players where research and development money was concentrated. It's coming from emerging economies. And I think this is where a trend that will continue to rise. So Drive help, help me to understand what was happening around it, to find a space almost like a placeholder where I could interpret what was happening in a way that I could make sense of it. Then I could, of course, become more strategic about it. That's pretty much what Drive has done to me. And just building up on uh, this, uh, I have a couple of questions. Like one is, you of course talk about resource scarcity. And uh, in fact, when you talk about resource scarcity, uh, you're talking about climate and climate change. Uh, and where do you see humanity going forward on this? How do you think we're going to tackle this problem? Because as I really look at it, if we are not able to tackle this uh, thing in the room, we are talking about annihilation of the race. We are 
right now in the middle of a sixth mass extinction. Um, and then the race could actually just vanish in a few thousand years, which is absolutely uh, what I call uh, scary. Yeah. What do you think we need to do here? How do you think we can actually create scalable solutions? Uh, how right. do we really make people understand that this is important to see? I think, uh, first of all, I mean, unfortunately, I agree with you on that more neg negative, uh, pessimistic way of looking at that. I believe that we are really mismanaging this since many years. I remember in last year when I was uh, in uh, the World Economic Forum, I met the Yuval Harari from Homo sapiens. And he was being interviewed by Thomson Reuters and to, to the question, uh, could we have addressed climate change when he was presenting to us? He said, back in time, at the beginning of the millennial, if we had collectively decided to stop the, the behavior that leads to climate change, we probably would have had a decrease of about 3% of global GDP, but that's minimal in comparison to the value you generate. But the reason we didn't do that is that in the moment that climate change became a political ideology where somebody could argue in the same room, he exists or he does not exist. I think that's where we have really mismanaged the opportunity. From a business perspective, I think that those who really make decisions, the policymaker and the finance guys, they haven't seen the case for sustainability until now with COVID. You know, there were times where you only had the social activists, the environmental scientists, uh, people working in social responsibility. You didn't have the financial, the hedge funds. You didn't have the, the venture capitalists, the banks. This guy were not thinking about it in the same way. Now they talk about ESG, SDG, measurement. I think now we're understanding that investing in sustainability is a much more lucrative model than not. My only worry is, are we on time for any form of reversibility? I don't know. You know, uh, our friend Michael Green, in his last uh, presentation of social progress, he basically says, if we go business as usual, we will reach the SDG by 2092. And I'm thinking that is a great problem. It's a problem that we need to have. It's only by a combination of technology to accelerate SDGs the financial industry that will start investing into sustainability because it's a better business model and the policymaker that will make that possible, I think we can shorten our, our opportunity. Uh, you know, in, oh, actually we can increase our opportunities and decrease the odds of failing. Uh, but gosh, I mean, if this is a tough, tough one, because again, you are in, in, in South Asia, you meet people every day that don't have the same concern because they're not exposed to it. And that shows you that the asymmetry of information is still so deep that I think it'll take us some time before more people will be able to get to that point. Um, it's been a failure, I think, from many dimensions. And, and I guess it was too much of an intellectual movement. It never became grassroots. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. So, sorry, uh, if you really look at this whole conversa conversation, uh, how do we really, you're also hinting at something very important that we have to go beyond the idea of wealth, wealth creation and things. You have to prioritize something hugely different than this. Uh, you prioritize social progress or uh, things. So how, how do you think we can actually bring this change in the world? You know, I always thought I mean, that if some of the largest and influential economy could do it, 
they would create some domino effect somehow. You know, again, going back to what we discussed before, there are many people who criticize the United States. But if the US was, for example, leading the effort in that direction, many smaller countries will simply copy it. It's just the nature of how we have seen many of these solutions to be applied around the world. And I guess if we have more important country leading the effort in that direction, I think we'll accelerate the ability for other country to say, it's part of it. I'm gonna give you a quick example. Throughout the last few years, I met uh, Paul Pullman from uh, Unilever several times. I guess you too, right? And I was always like uh, blown away by Pullman was very straightforward. He said, I'm using the power of Unilever to make sure that my suppliers will do as I say, because that's the only way they have to be part of my supply chain. If they're not complied, they're out. So I was thinking about people somewhere in the world without the access to the education that maybe is required to understand what's happening, that are into the incentive of working with Unilever, who are becoming agents of sustainability because it was designed as such. Unilever was able to push through because it's a multinational company and it was benevolent. I'm always thinking a combination between the private sector driving the effort and some important country leading the advocacy might provide us with some change in the direction. Then eventually become part of a, you know, of a self, uh, an autopilot where more countries will do that. Like it happens now in some of the standards we're using for communication, banking, it was set up to work. And then now we're just you know, even making decision. It was a meta decision that now we're simply enable every single day. I'm hoping this is what will happen. Uh, whether it will happen or not, I really think is a matter of the next few years. I think five years from now, we'll have a much clearer idea whether we're getting any closer to a solution, or whether we simply accept the fact that we have self-determined our destiny as being towards extinction. So that, that, that's an interesting point. But as we talk about extinction, of course, it is something which will happen about 2,000 years, 3,000 years. And there are some very immediate problems that we have to look at. Uh, how about inequality? Inequality has had such a stunning impact on the yes. world. And yeah. that has actually given rise to what you would call as possibly the nationalists, the authoritarians, uh, and that has happened across the world. Uh, so how do you really look at this uh, um, thing in the room, like in terms of, say, how do we manage inequality? I think, I mean, uh, I mean we can start by a larger financial inclusion of the millions of people that are not part of the financial economy. And that helps already to, to make sure that we are not necessarily excluding. That is just, I think, a, is a first step and it's not even exhaustive. I guess my challenge is the redistribution of capital, not in a, in a communist sense, but between the digital economy and the real economy in a way that is billions of dollars in, in assets that do not get redistributed anywhere. We find a way to redistribute them into a real project in the real world where we live every day. I find that as the digital economy decouple itself from the real economy, if you're hearing that the Dow Jones is growing by 15%, it doesn't mean anything for most people. My life is not better off. So I think, how do we find a way for the incentive to be redistributing re those capital back to the economy? Because in the good old days in capitalism, 
by hiring a person or by paying taxes, you're distributing capital. I think if Milton Friedman was alive, he would not recognize the kind of world we have become. I think by understanding that we have to redistribute some of this capital, um, maybe we're gonna give access to a new business model. We're gonna give access to the small medium enterprises that are now running businesses. Uh, governments will start recollecting some of their taxes so they will, might decrease the fiscal pressure. You'll see jobs and growth happening again, new type of jobs that are more aligned to the needs we have. Um, I guess this is a way for me to imagine a, a possible um, redistribution, but I'm afraid of using redistribution because it could be misinterpreted like top down. I think it's just about the normal way of designing the incentive to be in, in reintegrating capital back into the real economy. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's just what we need to envision more and more. Otherwise, the gap will become so big that it will become difficult for all of us to feel any sense of progression and social mobility in our life. And when social incentive, they get stifled, uh, radicalization happens. So what, what instruments do you think we can actually use for redistribution? Like one or two examples in that. You know, I think government incentive should be in reintegrating capital back into the real economy. They can do it through fiscal incentives or to specific policy. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong than a company that has, uh, you know, uh, billions of dollars in profit by marginal cost almost zero that is actually engaged to reintegrate that back into startup ecosystems, you know, a small entrepreneur. I think there is nothing wrong in asking them to show that their contribution to society can no longer be you know, exercised in traditional format because technology is making employment less and less efficient and productivity efficient without people. So I think it's a reflection of future of work. How do I define value? Now the value no longer becomes uh, naturally distributed. I guess that's one possibility. The other one is, I think, to uh, uh, incentivize the investors, not to necessarily rush to the digital company when they get publicly listed, but to have more incentive to invest in the company brick and mortar on the ground. I think 60-70% of uh, the world economy are driven by small medium enterprises. Many of them are one to three people companies. We need to support them. We need to find a better way for the investment to go where the investment has to go. And I don't think it's that the investor is just simply greedy. I think that many of them have no clue where to invest other than in the usual suspects. I remember um, meeting people in, in uh, Chamber of Commerce in which they would like, for example, to invest into vertical farming, hydroponic, new form of agriculture, but they have no way to go by. They don't know what to do. And I, I would hope if we can improve the relationship between investment an opportunity on the ground. There is a necklace of innovators around the world that deserve to be you know, supported with capital. And if we are asking the large technology company or the company in the stock exchange to somehow help reintegrate some of this capital back in the economy, you know, when you create a bit of a, of a sandwich where you're decreasing the tension, you might find that a few millions of people might start uh, now finding jobs that not existed before. And that might start this domino effect that we're looking forward to. 
but again, so hard unless it's really concentrated and orchestrated by both private sector, the financial players, and governments. So, just moving ahead on this, um, you know, like you're just bringing this whole aspect of capitalism and things, and trying to weave in the whole idea of politics and the global situation that we see. There has always been a very huge criticism of the U.S. saying that U.S. global leadership has created all the problems that we are looking at. Either mm -hmm. the climate, or you talk about the present capitalistic system, the present global structure, uh, the present global supply chains, or whatever. They have created quite a lot of problems. Uh, how do you think we can get, is this right? Is this not right? Uh, and how would you like to react to this? Yeah, I mean, I think it was right in 1944, 1945, 1948. We were recovering from a disaster, World War II. The world was in shambles. And I think the U.S. was the only gatekeeper that could create a military order that was designed to support and protect a financial order with the U.S. dollar and an institutional order with things like IMF, World Bank, the U.N., so I think historically it made sense because it was the heritage of the Western world. Today, a dependency on that I think is obsolete. I love to see more of these new governance models coming from other countries. I think China is trying, but it's playing a game pretty much on its own, on invitation only. And I find it a little bit more difficult to imagine that they want to step up to a global role. Um, but I think that, yeah, we need to have some form of global governance, especially as some of the challenges we're facing right now, they are globally experienced by many people. So I don't think it's just about, um, you know, a country anymore. There's much more need for the multilateral institution to address global challenges. Um, I don't think that in uh, the 40s, the 50s, the global challenges were as of the same magnitude that we have right now. So I think the organizing principle of the future should have that some institutional framework of institutions that are capable of dealing with global challenges, they need to be in place. Whether that dependency will again be centered around the US or another country, I don't know. I think U.S. is a fatigue model to me. It's tired. The U.S. doesn't have the same influence as before. And I think we start seeing that, you know, there are other realities in the world rising. Asia is the future without any doubt on any single dimension. Will we see Asia stepping up and becoming a global hegemon that will help us in the governance of the needs we're going to have? Uh, I don't know. I think this is something you experience daily when you are in India, whether the country is getting closer or not to this aspiration. But I don't know whether it was right. I think it was historically uh, maybe necessary. And so that, that's fascinating. But when you talk about say, Asia, the rise of Asia, uh, are you really going to say fundamentally one or two countries or is it going to be a collective? Thing because Asia seems to be a fairly large place in itself. Are you saying China? Are you yeah. saying India? Are you saying Singapore or something else? You know, uh, recently in one of my classes, a Chinese student said, why don't we have an alliance like the EU between China, South Korea, and Japan? Wouldn't we be powerful? And I had no, nothing to answer other than say, pretty much, it would be a pretty powerful alliance. So I think I would like to see some form of integration of the Asian economies for so long have been disputing borders, wars, you know, territories, armies, islands. 
uh, I would imagine to, ima to see an integration of the, you know, of the Asian uh, continent more than before. It happened in the EU. It happened with the North uh, Atlantic uh, Trade Agreement, the re North American Trade Agreement that so somehow the increase of opportunity for a country like Canada, US and Mexico. I think the integration of Asia is, is a necessity given the importance that Asia has. Um, but will we be able to see China playing along? That's a big question. Will India be looking at the model like China? But from last time we were together in class in San Francisco, I don't think the India is emulating the Chinese model. It's not what they can do or want to do. So I think, yeah, it will be some player, but I'd love to imagine more of an integration. The regional integration of Asia could be a game changer if that ever happens. So I have to ask you a very geopolitical question here because you brought mm -hmm. China into the conversation. Yeah. Um, but there is, there seemingly is an absolute uh, obsession uh, with Hong Kong and Taiwan. And yeah. that also reflects a lot of things. And then of course, uh, a certain behavior in terms of uh, uh, how we are really looking at uh, uh, what acquisition of land or what you might yeah. land grab in various countries. So uh, how do you really look at that? And then ever-increasing economic power of the China, the China as a country. Wow. <laughs> these are some of the questions that I, I said, no, is it going to ask me one of these questions? You did. <laughs> so um, listen, I think Hong Kong is following a clear path of some form of annexation or integration within the greater China, uh, not necessarily formally or any way military, but I think the economic dependency between mainland China and Hong Kong is becoming deeper and deeper and deeper. And Beijing now pays attention to that. So unfortunately, I think the moment that uh, Hong Kong went away from the British flag, uh, it was inevitably moving in the direction that you know, either you go further away, you go closer, right? It's getting closer by the day. Many entrepreneurs from China cross to Hong Kong to do business. So Hong Kong for me is gonna be a special region within the interest of China, no matter how much I would like it to be an independent entity. Um, Taiwan, I think is slightly different because uh, um, it's been on this tension for quite some times. But in the long run, you know, even the pro-independence uh, party in Taiwan have very favorable relationship with mainland China and with the Communist Party. All it takes is a change of government in it, right? And then some form of integration could happen. So I'm almost considered them to be, you know, what sunk cost. They, they this, this two kind, these two regions are sooner or later be integrated in the larger influence of China. Um, but you know, Singapore, I would love for Singapore to preserve its own independence and the role in the region. I like to imagine that maybe things like Jakarta or Kuala Lumpur can equally play a role in balancing this know-how that is coming to the region. Uh, you know, I like to imagine, you know, Bangkok aspiring to that model as well. Manila, maybe. Um, I would say there is still space for a multilateral Asia. But how do we uh, run away from the size that China has of this influence? I don't think we can. In the same way as in Latin America, no country can live without the, the shadow of the United States, right? So, so, but I have to really step back and I have to go to uh, in the uh, what, what you're working on, the fourth industrial revolution. And very quickly, 
how do you think the transformation that we are seeing right now through the fourth industrial revolution paradigm, uh, that whole transformation of economies and societies, uh, do we even have a grasp of how things are really happening? Are we really able to assess or address things that are facing us? And if that happens, how do you think industrialization is going to change? What is the future looking like? If I have to ask you, your crystal gazing, we ask you in terms of like how, how, how the world is going to be looking like. Yeah, I think, I mean, that COVID was the greatest accelerant to the fourth industrial revolution. And if we manage it correctly, we'll see the use of technology for the improvement of human life and giving access to people that will never have access before, similar to how few months gave access to a vaccine in a phenomenal uh, you know, record time. Something that you know, really proved the value of the scientific community around the world and how technology has really made that possible. Even now, the supply chain of the vaccine can only happen with the right level of automation and how many vaccines we're producing. I think if we use the fortunate revolution in the sense of augmenting people and our experience of life, we will have millions of people having opportunity that never seen before. Uh, I remember studying this company in India that is using um, a technique to merely forecast uh, breast cancer before it's even visible in the traditional testing. And I'm thinking, how do we get this startup to scale around the world uh, in a way that uh, now suddenly more and more people will use this technology? If we are able to understand that the power of the fourth revolution is to empower small entrepreneurs with technology solutions that they can really improve the quality of life and giving them the access to the market so that they can scale, I think we're going to see millions of people whose problem will be addressed with the right level of technology. There's a, one of the founders of Siri, Gruber, uh, recorded a wonderful TED talk. And he said, what if we use AI to help people remember when they suffer from Parkinson or dementia? How important is memory in the life of a person? But why do we spend so much time instead in making AI smarter rather than using AI to make us smarter? I think if we're changing the polarity of the conversation, the fourth IR, it will be our greatest opportunity to give access to millions of people to things that they couldn't have before. And maybe that will reduce inequality. And even if it's not true, I rather finish the conversation by believing this story than telling something that makes me depressed. Mm -hmm. So should I say that you have a far more positive view of the world uh, than a lot of people would like to believe? I think that we stand a chance. I still think we're going to get extinct, but that's a different story. I still, I, I think we stand the chance to make the 21st century a much more equitable century because we have enormous amount of talent like never before. We can share practices at a much faster pace than before. And there are many really good people out there. I think you meet a lot of people that you would like to uh, meet again because they're good. You equally meet people that you would like to run over if you could. But the question is, I think fundamentally the world has many good people. And I think if we empower that generation to go in the right direction, if we are pulling and pushing the right levers, if we use technology in the right way, if we get engaging finance in the right uh, drivers, I think, again, I'm not sure if this is called optimism, but I think we stand a chance. And 
let's go back to the beginning of our conversation. Uh, you were about to share something exciting. Oh, yes. So it's a, if everything goes well, uh, we might have a book called The Great Remobilization that will be published by MIT University Press and in 2022. And uh, if that happens, um, we will have a book with an important brand that will help us in bringing more and more of this conversation to a larger audiences. All we write book for is to give us an excuse to talk with people we wouldn't talk otherwise, because then they maybe read the work we have. And it would be great if that happens. So it's almost in the making. I will be non-superstitious this time. So by announcing it to the thinker dialogue, I'm hoping it's going to bring me luck. Uh, absolutely. I, 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 think, I wish you luck on that book. And uh, I, I hope to read it before it comes out. And I'm, uh, With a pleasure. Yes, but we still have the project to write a book together. You know this, is, and you know that anyway. You won't run away from it. It will happen, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But then there's a question from the audience which I should ask. What What do you think? Last but not the least, is going to be the future of work. Future work. You know, I believe that we will now have created the right level of legitimacy that technology can be a form of uh, uh, legitimate work for, workplace. I still think that people will try to engage into personal contacts. We don't need the nine to six anymore every day. I think we will change into a much more flexible way. We'll change the travel for business because now we can reach out through a video conference and the outcome are very comparable. Um, I believe we're going to be much more gender balanced in the nature of the work because most of the job we have were mainly male design and they were designed for a man, not necessarily for a woman. So many women, they're struggling going back to work after maternity because the job were designed for people that don't have to take a maternity leave. I think we'll go into more modular uh, and much more flexible formats of jobs. And maybe we'll think of job not just as a job that will be permanent, but it's a job that maybe people will have multiple role, a portfolio or jobs. Um, I, I see this actually, once the, we go through that earthquake, uh, it will be way better jobs than the ones we used to have before, much more design around what people really are worth it. Because imagine, I mean, a person that is doing 50% of the time the same job, repetitive, it gets to the point in which it's almost uh, not dignifying anymore, right? There's so much more that we can use people for. So I'm hoping we redesign job for our strength. And those strengths are not by repeating stuff over and over again, because that's what machines are for. So that's, again, that's the view I like to have. So, so that's a, on this fascinating note, Mark, I think uh, we'll get this conversation to a close, but it's just been a great conversation. I learned so much out of this. Uh, and of course, uh, we, uh, if you were in a class, we could, it could have actually turned into a battleground of sorts. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, with different views and uh, massacring each other, but that would, have, that would be for a different conversation and a different time. But thanks a lot for joining us today. It's just been a pleasure hosting you and having you with us. Thanks. I mean, thank you. And to anyone who saw this, I mean, our friendship is one of the most important things that I got from my time at Harvard. And I'm happy that he has survived so many different moments. And I look forward to what is ahead of us. And on a personal level, you're really a close friend and I really appreciate the work you do. Thanks again. Thanks, thanks, Mark. Be well and be safe. Good luck. Yes, take care, bye.